While we transition, let me challenge you to grab a Bible, if you don't have one with you, and turn over to (coughs) Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, and uh, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find our text today on page 896, that's 896, and Luke chapter 23. I'm going to start a new series today, and um, we've called the series Echoes, from the cross to today. You know, there's just some statements that seem to just continue to echo down through history, or they just echo in our personal history. You know, um, I just finished reading a book on the, the United States battle with the Barbary Coast states back around 1800. And, um, and one of the statements that emerged out of that book was by Captain Lawrence, who was the, the uh, captain of the USS Chesapeake. And it was in 1813, and his... He had been mortally wounded in the midst of this uh, naval battle, and he was lying on the deck, and things weren't going too well, and et cetera. And his last statement to his crew was, don't give up the ship. And that statement today is still something that the Navy uses as they, they, you know, as one of their mottos, you know. Or around here, right, we have, don't shoot until you see the whites of their eyes, right? Sometimes, you know, there's just a statement that's made in history that continues to echo. Some of us have personal statements like that. for me is my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was dying. She was 97, and she was just simply dying of old age. She was healthy, but things were just wearing out. And so she was at the hospital, at the Waltham Hospital, and, and, and I went up to see her. Most of the family was there, and so we had to kind of shuttle in and out, and it was my last time to go in and see her. And I, I said to my grandmother, and her name was Myrtle Richardson, don't ever name your kid Myrtle, but her name was Myrtle Richardson. And uh, I think it was better than Bertha and Gertrude and Villa, which were her three sisters. So um, she, got, she got the better end of the, of the deal there. But, but um, I, I said to my grandma, I said, I love you, Grammy. You know, and, and her response to me, again, she's going to be dead within 24 hours. She said, she says, I love you too, I always have. And it's just one of those statements you're never going to forget just continues to ring in, in your ears. And, and it, many of you can re- think, well, spiritually, some of the greatest words that reverberate, that echo down through the centuries to us, are the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. So we're going to begin a series today leading up to Good Friday and Easter where we're going to look at the seven last statements that Jesus made from the cross. It's kind of a traditional series that we do, but People have done, we've never done one of these here at Hope Chapel, but some powerful truths involved in there. And so the first of those is found in Luke chapter 23. Let me, let me kind of give you some context here to start with, because we're kind of jumping into the middle of the story, right? And you might be a little disoriented if you, so let, let's, let's think about that last week of the life of Christ and, and kind of review what's taken place, because we're by all that stuff already. The triumphal entry, the stuff we'll celebrate on Palm Sunday That's already happened. Jesus' cleansing of the temple has already happened. All the events of of Monday, Thursday, you know, the the meal in the upper room with the Passover meal and et cetera, the the Lord's Supper, the foot washing, the betrayal by Judas, the, the time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of that's happened. All of the, all of the, the, the trials before Pilate, and Pilate trying to wiggle out of stuff, and all that's happened. All the brutality of Jesus has already happened. You know, he's been beaten and whipped, 
and, you know, and mocked and had a thorn of crowns put in his head. All that stuff has happened. And daylight on Friday morning, what we know is Good Friday, sunrise has happened. And they're ready to begin the events of the day. And so we pick up the story in verse 32 of Luke chapter 23. And so as the day dawns and they get things moving, it says two others, criminals, were also led away with him to be executed. And they arrived at the place called the Skull. Sometimes it's referred to as Galgotha. That would be out of the the Arabic. Um, But it, it also, we, in the Latin, it's the term Calvary, where we get Mount Calvary. We get Mount Calvary's cross. It all refers to the same place, the skull. When they got there, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right, one on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. And that's the statement we're going to consider today. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. And the people stood watching, and even the leaders kept scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers, they also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. But an inscription was above him. It says, This is the king of the Jews. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, I want to I share a couple of thoughts with you from this passage that really aren't my point. And then I'm going to go on and share a couple of other points with you that really are my point. This is really a, a remarkable event in the life of Christ. Th- think about what's going on. Jesus has been whipped, right? Probably whipped literally within a few lashes of his life. He's been beaten. They've used his face like a, as like a punching bag kind of thing. He's just, he's just a mess, and he's bleeding. And, and, and they've marched him out carrying this cross. They had to get somebody else, Simon, who, who carries it along with him. And when they get there, they drive nails through his hands and through his feet. They didn't always do that when they crucified, but in this particular case, they did. And Jesus is hanging on the cross, literally beaten within an inch of his life, bleeding from multiple places on his body. And he's standing in the midst of a place of chaos and callousness, right? You know, he's looking down and and the soldiers are tossing dice to decide who's going to get what. You can almost imagine them looking up at him saying, you couldn't have better stuff for us to divide up, kind of, you know? And and at the same time, the, the, the crowds who just earlier have been yelling, crucify him, crucify him, now they're, they're kind of silent and standing back. But the leaders, they're still saying, you know what, you're supposed to be somebody special with God. You know, if you're going to save everybody else, save yourself first kind of thing. And, and the mocking and et cetera is going on. And here's Jesus sitting, hanging on the cross, right? And he prays. I'm thinking to myself, would I pray? I mean, I think I got a couple of options, right? On, on, on my lesser days, and this clearly would be one of your lesser days, right? You're hanging on a cross. Being, you, you know, on my lesser days, I would just want to throw back insult for insult, right? You know, you're, you, you just, you, just a verbal assault, just a stream of something. How many of you even today, as righteous as you are, when you hit your thumb with a hammer, right? 
you know, there's just this, you know, it, it, it just wanna, would want to come, right? You know, and, and, and Jesus doesn't do that. Or another reaction when we're having one of our good days is, well, let, let's enlist a lot of people to pray for me. I'm going through a tough time, so let's get a lot of people to pray for me. You know, one of, the, one, of the, one of our natural instincts often as believers is that when we hit a crisis time, the very th- first thing we do is we don't pray. We ask a bunch of other people to pray for us, right? You know, it, it, and, and, and yet Jesus' first instinct is to pray. And that's remarkable in and of itself. But on top of that, he prays to Father. Father. You know, and, and you and I, in a lot of these moments, if we were in Jesus' shoes, we'd be mad at God. You know, you, many of you know the Albies. Would, would, would it surprise you that in some moments, Kevin would have flashes of anger at God? He's lost his oldest son, his only son. Now he's lost his wife, who went through three years of tremendous difficulty recovering from this debilitating stroke, would, would, it be, would it surprise you that he might be angry at God at some point? I think most of us can relate to that. There's sometimes when these difficulties hit our lives, we, we feel like, you know, we, we, that God somehow has abandoned us or God isn't really living up to his end of the bargain or whatever, and we feel distant and alienated from God and doubt begins to slip in in terms of who we are and who he is and all those kinds of things. And none of that happens for Jesus. He prays to the Father, and he has no doubt about where he stands with the Father. He has no question about what's happening. He still has that intimate connection with him. And that's also remarkable. But neither one of those things is my point today. What's remarkable is what Jesus prays for. And when he prays it. And why he prays it. Those are the things that are absolutely remarkable. You know, when, when, when he prays here, think about who does he pray for and what is the content of that prayer? Now, it's not only remarkable that Jesus prays and he prays to the Father, but if you and I were in his shoes, well, let me think, if I was in his shoes, my instinct would have been to pray for myself, right? Father, deliver me. Somehow or another, get me off this cross. Or if I was having one of my better days, I might say, Lord, help me to finish well. But you know what? If you can keep the pain down, that's pretty, pretty, pretty good. I, w- I wouldn't mind if I passed out here in a few minutes and didn't feel anything else until it was all over. Or you know, we, we'd be praying for endurance and that kind of thing. Jesus doesn't pray for himself, does he? He prays for us. Father, forgive them. And that's a collective term that relates to all of us, right? All of us who need a Savior, and that is all of us. He prays for them. And, and, when, he, and when he prays, notice, this is to me the, the phenomenal part. When Jesus hangs on the cross, he's the one who's been betrayed, Right? Judas betrayed him. The Jewish leaders betrayed him. Pilate, you know, he is the one who's been sold down the river. And as he prays, his focus is on the impact that those actions are going to have of those people's relationship with the Father. 
Now let that sink in for a minute. When he says, he says, he's not saying, Father, give me the ability to forgive these people. Or praying, Father, show those people what they've done wrong so they can repent of it. He says, Father, you forgive them for what they've done. The burden that was on the heart of the Savior when he hung on the cross was what was what our actions do to our relationship with the Father. And that is profound. Well, let's twist it out just a little bit. Let's flesh it out a little bit into our natural. Any of you are married, right? And um, imagine your spouse came home to you, and, and this probably has happened in some relationships. Your spouse comes, so somewhere in the midst of all of that, your spouse communicates to you, I'm I'm sorry, I've been watching pornography. And and, and almost immediately our reaction is, how could you do this to me, right? How could you do this to me? That's not the way Jesus reacts at all, is it? You know, or sometimes we can do this with our kids. We, 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 we. Trust something to our children. We give them a privilege or responsibility or whatever, and they intentionally mess it up, right? You know, we had one of those experiences. We went to an overnight. We left the kids at home by themselves. They decided to throw a party, right? You know, and, you know, that kind of thing, and we find out about it, etc. And you And you're just thinking, how could you violate our trust, right? It's about us. And yet Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, He's, he's not worried about what they've done to him, how they've violated him. What imp- he's worried about how their actions are going to change their relationship with the Father. And he prays for the Father to grant forgiveness. And th- this is a powerful thought. I mean, because the Scriptures ask us to be forgiving people just as the Father is forgiving, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. One of the keys to being forgiving people, to being representatives of the Savior, of being ambassadors for Christ, is that we're not worried about what other people's actions do to us. We're burdened about how their actions impact their relationship with the Father. So go back to that scenario with your child or with your spouse. Think about your first reaction is, how could you do this to me? What if your reaction is, man, how have you damaged your relationship with God? And how can you pray for that and work through it together? It's powerful stuff. But it is phenomenal that Jesus doesn't pray for himself. He prays for us. And that the content of his prayer is that the Father should forgive us. Because our actions impact our relationship with the Father. It, it, it is, a, is a powerful truth for us. And it is at the heart of us experiencing the salvation that the Savior gives us and living out that salvation in the relationships we have around us. I'm also amazed about when Jesus prays. You know how... I've been in ministry a long time. You guys have been living a long time. You know, a lot of times we get into this, you know, when somebody's hurt us, 
one of the things we say is, you know what? I need some time to heal, and then I might be able to forgive. You know, or, you know what? I, I might be able to forgive them, but, but I got to see what they're going to do with this, right? Are they going to really change the way they behave if they're feeling sorry now, but is it, is it, what's it going to look like a month from now or whatever? And we get into this place where we're, we you know, kind of want to wait and see or whatever. We want to separate the experience from the act of forgiveness. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's in the middle. In fact, the worst of it is still to come, right? The worst of it is still to come. And before it's even over, he's already petitioning the Father to grant us forgiveness. It's amazing. It's amazing. That's the kind of love. That's the kind of heart. That's the kind of intent that the Father had in sending the Son to be the Savior, was that even before any of it all works out, even before even a single person dawned on their, it, it, it even impacted their heart that they needed to seek God's forgiveness through Christ. Before any of that had happened, the Savior is pleading for God to forgive us. It's amazing stuff. It really is amazing. You know, a lot of times, again, we, we want to be in a position where we want to back up and kind of see and et cetera, and, and, and it's amazing. And, and, and this is so important for us theologically. Because we often think that the flow of things in our lives is we repent, we experience God's mercy, and then we live new life. It's not the way it works. When you look at the scriptures, mercy is granted. Then we repent. Then we experience new life. God has already granted us mercy in the Savior who hung on the cross and prayed, Father, forgive them because they don't really know what they're doing. See, I don't know if you guys are using book or not. I mean, we know, I know we gave out 200 of them, which made me maybe thinks that 25 of you have actually reading these on a daily basis. I'm being a little bit pessimistic, but, you know, that's because I'm make, trying to make you feel guilty so you'll actually use it, right? You know, it's, uh, you know, the psychological warfare, whatever you want to call it. And, and, but there, there's a tremendous quote in this book on page 26, day four of your readings. You see, you know, we often think that is repentance is our way back to God. We think that this is what I do to get back to God. That's not what repentance is at all. Repentance is simply our response to the God who's already come to us. We, we, don't, we don't repent to somehow get back into the zip code so that God can give us mercy we repent because we're living in the zip code where God has already prayed for and answered his gift of mercy for us. It's powerful stuff. And listen, you know, this is a little bit of a side, but, but one of the things that holds so many people hostage spiritually is they have really no understanding what God has done for them in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. You know, sometimes... I, I think, you know, I, I meet with way too many people and, and subtly, subtly reflected in their comments is this idea that, that, that repentance, it's, it, repentance is like an opportunity for me to refinance. 
Now, what do you mean by that? Let me, let, me, let me unpack that just a little bit, right? You know, you, you, you think, you, well, all right, I, I get to a place in my life where I can't do enough good deeds to make up for my bad deeds. So my balance sheet is out of whack, right? You know, I don't have enough income to cover the debt. And so God comes in and grants me I get a chance to refinance my good deeds, bad deeds stuff, and now hopefully I can have enough good deeds to outweigh my bad deeds kind of stuff, and so therefore I can keep my spiritual head above water that there's a little bit of money left at the end of the month. I got to tell you, that is, that is the greatest heresy that the evil one wants to sell to us. That has no basis in Scripture. Well, well, we didn't even have an idea of what it is that we were doing. God was already granting forgiveness and requests from the Son. And repentance doesn't have anything to do with refinancing our spiritual debt. Repentance means that we respond to the fact that God's removed all of our spiritual debt. None left. That, that note burning of the debt note, it's gone. It's <coughs> incredible. That's when Christ prays for us. Before we're even ready to turn, et cetera, he chains. I want you to notice, too, how this prayer is answered. This prayer for God to forgive those who are doing what they really don't understand they're doing and the impact that it has a relationship on the Father. You know how that prayer gets answered? The blood of the Son gets spilled. And a few hours later, he's going to say, it's finished. It is finished. And it's over. You know, in a few minutes, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper and we're going to use the text, Matthew's version of the very first Lord's Supper. And when Jesus took the cup and he passed it to his disciples, he said, see this cup? It represents my blood and establishes a new covenant. And what my blood does provides forgiveness. What did Jesus just pray? Got to pray on the cross for our forgiveness? It provides the forgiveness of sin for many. Jesus was the answer to his own prayer. And even though he knew what it was going to cost him, he prayed it because he cares about us. And he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Why did he pray? Because we need forgiveness. We need forgiveness. We need it globally in terms of our salvation. There isn't anything you and I can do to get anywhere close to paying off that that debt level. But we also need God's ongoing forgiveness for the ways where we haven't worked out our salvation completely yet in fear and trembling. We need God's forgiveness. We need God's forgiveness. And Jesus prays for us to be forgiven. In terms of globally, in terms of our salvation, to have our sin, our sinfulness dealt with, as well as the way that works out in our lives as we continue to live as people of faith. You know, one of the... One of the one of the great burdens that, that I feel as, as the pastor of a local church, 
is that there are a lot of people who hang around church. You know, I've been going to church since I was a kid, and they say, ah, maybe I could go down more regularly and that kind of stuff, et cetera. But, you know, I, I, I'm a Christian, and, and, and yet in the midst of being a Christian, they've never personally experienced the forgiveness that God has given them through Christ's prayer and death on the cross. They've never had a moment where they said, I need a Savior. I know who the Savior is. God, forgive me because of who he is and what he's done. They've come and they've heard a lot of great truths and they try to be great people and do this and that and nice and they'll show up tomorrow with some sandwiches for the funeral and all that. And, 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 and boy, you know, they're just the kind of people you want living next door. All that's good stuff. But that's not the same thing as experiencing the answer to Jesus' prayer in your own life. And my, my appeal to you today is to experience the answer to this prayer in your own life. Experience the forgiveness of God through the prayer and through the death and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we said, well, how do I do that? You know, it, it, it could be a conversation we have for a month. Let me just summarize it just this simply. You, you need to start by saying, I need a Savior. I need a Savior. I, I may be better than 98% of the other people in the world, but I need Savior. Secondly, believe that Jesus is that Savior. Intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, whatever the right term is, all of that together and a little bit more, whatever, you got to believe that God, that Jesus is God's Savior for us. And then you got to confess it. You've got you to state it. You've got to live it. You've you, you got to confess that faith as a part of who you are. Admit it. Believe it. Live it. Confess it. It's remarkable. You know, I, I, I want to go back to the power of this, and then we're going to conclude it, and, and, and I'll offer a prayer. You know, I, I mentioned earlier when Jesus prayed this. The worst was still yet to come. He, he's, he's beaten to within an inch of his life nailed to a cross, hanging by his arm so it's putting so much pressure on his ribcage that he can hardly breathe, and the worst is yet to come. And we're going to see that statement in a couple of weeks where, where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's where the weight comes in, where he took him who knew no sin, and he literally makes him sin. The, 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 literally the molecules of Jesus are twisting and being transformed into sin so that our spiritual DNA can be transformed into God's righteousness as God answers the prayer of Jesus that he offers on the cross. And, you know, you think, well, I am, you know, I, I... The sin that we're talking about, we, sometimes we really don't, we don't know. I mean, we can see something. I mean, just think how horrific it was for Jesus, who loved everybody perfectly, to hang on that cross and have his body if you will, his, literally his, 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 his molecules twisted. He literally became sin. He bore all the weight of some of the greatest things, greatest acts of inhumanity. I think about the fact that Jesus literally bore all of the guilt 
that went with the slaughter of 800,000 lives in 100 days in Rwanda. And a half million women in those same 100 days were raped. A half million women in 100 days. 800,000 people died. All of that sat on his shoulders. And he became that. The stuff in the Holocaust, and the list just goes on and on. The horrific stuff. It's a, he became all of that. And he became our salvation. And he was the answer to his own prayer. And today, I long for that prayer to be fulfilled in our lives as the people of Hope Chapel. Let's pray together for just a minute, and then we'll observe the Lord's Supper. As you sit here today, and you say, well, you know, I'm, and you might identify yourself as somebody say, well, I'm, I'm a church person, but I'm not really sure I'm a Christian. I invite you to become a Christian today. A Christian is somebody who has responded to the mercy that God's already given in Jesus Christ. Do that today. Just simply, right now, just silently in your horn say, God, I know I need a Savior. My sin might not be as dark as, as what happened in Rwanda or the Holocaust or any other great things, but, but I know I need a Savior. And today I know that Jesus is that Savior. And I confess my faith in him. Don't be just a churchgoer. Truly be a Christian. Let Jesus answer this prayer in your life. Father, forgive them. Because they really don't know what they're doing. God, honor that prayer even today among us. As we pray in the name of the one who spoke it. Jesus himself.